Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, on this week's New Station podcast, Anoush interviews David Otwell about our cover story this week, Anatomy of a Crisis, and you ask Alva and I whether or not Keir Starmer is creating problems for himself in his responses to the Black Lives Matter movement. So we're delighted to be joined by our head of data journalism, David Otwell, for his podcast debut. Thanks so much for joining us, David. Listeners probably don't know that David and I have been particularly busy over the past couple of months working on a special issue of the New Statesman called The Anatomy of a Crisis. And in this issue, we've been polling over 500 business leaders, comparing 14 major world economies across more than 40 coronavirus-related data points, and analysed 10 years of data on cuts to our local and national services during the decade of austerity to work out why the UK has got itself in the situation that it has done in its response to the pandemic and how it matches up against other countries. So, David, you've been grappling with most of this data. What are the main findings? Yeah, I mean, it struck us that what was sort of missing, I guess, was a, was an overview, which was looking at lots of different dimensions. So I think people have, have seen a lot of the epidemiological data, if you like. We've all seen the graphs and the curves and the are we flattening the curve discussions. But there are obviously a lot of dimensions to this. And we, we wanted to look at also a bit about why those curves were as they were. So in addition to looking at the data on deaths, we were also looking at when lockdowns were introduced, what stimulus measures were introduced and when, and seeing what we could learn from that. And the the picture that emerged regarding the UK was that it was sort of theoretically very well prepared. But when it came down to it, we were were kind of a bit slow to act in lots of ways. I think people will be aware that the deaths data for the UK is not great. In terms of the excess deaths we've seen, they were were the highest of, of any of the countries that we looked at. And it, it turned out that what, what seemed to have happened was we were just a bit slow to lock down. We weren't very decisive in the lockdown. And therefore, it took us a lot longer from hitting our peak, which was higher than most countries, to bring it down to a level which was, you know, 20 percent, 25 percent of those highest levels. So I don't think anybody could look at any one data set and say this is a great proxy of how well a government's done. But we're trying to paint a, a broad overall picture. And it, the UK does not emerge well from that comparison. Yeah. And there are some really shocking findings in the international comparisons, aren't there? Like like you said, the highest proportion of excess deaths and also 
it's taken the UK the longest to bring deaths down from peak levels and twice as long as many countries that you'd count as comparable to the UK. Was there anything that really shocked you when you started putting these numbers together? Yeah, I think that was something that I'd missed, to be honest, looking at, I've been following the data quite closely, but until we actually did that analysis, I hadn't realised that was the case. I mean, to, to smooth out daily fluctuations, we looked at figures as a seven day average and that how long it took us to bring it down. I think it was 59 days between the peak and the 20% of the peak. Germany, I think it was 27 days and even countries like France, Spain and Italy that we think of as similar to the UK. I think France was 34 days, Spain about 42, and Italy was less than 50 as well. So, you know, that I think doesn't speak well of our response to the pandemic. I think the thing you always have to bear in mind as well is that, you know, we kind of had the example of Italy and Spain to some extent. Italy was a couple of weeks ahead of us and yet still managed to bring those figures down quicker. So certainly that, and I don't think you can look past those death figures. I know Boris Johnson's made great play of we have to wait, we have to wait, we can't do an international comparison yet. But I think we do have enough data to say that in many ways we have had more deaths than anyone else. We've had more excess deaths as a proportion of the deaths we'd expect to see in a normal year. And just the brute total on a per capita basis is higher too. And I don't think, obviously, the more data that comes out, the more precise that picture will be. But we have enough now to say that that's not a good performance. Yeah. And and that is true, isn't it? The, the government will often say, well, some of these international comparisons aren't fair because different countries collect data in a different way. How did you make sure that your comparisons were as fair as possible? I mean, there's always going to be an element of that. But I think there's a big difference between saying this data can't tell us everything and this data tells us nothing. I think you have to just be clear on what the caveats are on the data. There's a, there's a, there's a big gap between those two positions, I think. And, and I think we have to accept the data is telling us something and we have to see its limitations. There are things you can do. I mean, for example, at the start of the epidemic, I think there was a big debate over whether it was fairer to look at deaths per capita or, or on an absolute level because of the way that viruses spread. They, they, they spread from a point outwards, uh, basically, rather than at all points of a country equally at all times. I think by now, though, when the virus is very widespread, a per capita comparison is a much fairer way of doing it. And, you know, if you're looking at stimulus packages, you look at that as a proportion of GDP, or you look at it as a, you compare it against the, the number of deaths and how many cases there have been in a country. So there are ways of making those comparisons as fair as possible. And I think certainly you can make them fair to the point where they're meaningful. But yes, you're right. I mean, there are always going to be some limitations with that. And in terms of some of the polling that that we've done, we've done some original polling of 500 business leaders and and some of the results from that make for very worrying reading for the future. So one of the stats is that uh, 73% of businesses still expect to cut jobs. This is despite the job retention scheme, despite the emergency schemes by the government to try and keep people in work. Obviously, we haven't seen yet the true impact of, of coronavirus or the lockdown from coronavirus on the UK in terms of employment, have we? That's exactly right. Uh, when you look at the official unemployment figures, the US is very much a, an outlier in that its its official unemployment rate rocketed. The UK's has been broadly static, which people seem shocked by. But, you know, the reason for that is we have had this furlough scheme. But until that furlough scheme ends in October, we don't really know yet what the what the true effect is going to be uh, on the job market and on you know whether people have jobs to go back to. 
We know, for example, there's been huge use of uh, universal credit and we have things like this. We have businesses telling us that a lot of those jobs are just not going to be there. And I think that's true in general, that a lot of the effects of COVID are going to be fairly long term effects. You know, there's a huge knock on effect that we can already predict in the NHS where a lot of elective surgery has been cancelled. You know, a lot of really important diagnostic tests haven't been carried out yet. A lot of procedures that need to be carried out have. And mm. we know that the NHS was already under a huge amount of pressure before this, and that's not going to have changed. Well, that's what I wanted to come on to, actually, because the section of this issue that I was working on was how resilient the the UK was in the face of a pandemic after 10 years of cuts and cuts to public health budgets, cuts to the number of operations and the missed A&E targets and all of these kind of things that were stretching the health and social care service sort of shone out from from the research that we were doing and made it look like the cuts to local and national services since 2010 were almost perfectly tailored to weaken Britain in the face of a pandemic. So you have all sorts of things, you know, access to public space. That's That's been something that's been incredibly important for people during during lockdown. And, and we've seen a, a, a cut and selling off of those public spaces by councils because of the, the lack of funding since 2010. Also, the rising number of class sizes, which means that there's less classroom space, which is also, of course, incredibly important to trying to come out of lockdown and get children back in schools. And, and of course, the public sector pay freeze as well. And welfare cuts. Almost everything that was touched by that austerity agenda has turned out to be crucial in either our response directly to the pandemic's health implications, but also to the economic stress and all sorts of other stresses, mental health stress, for example. But you said at the beginning of of, of this podcast that actually on paper, the UK was theoretically well prepared for a pandemic. So how do you square that? Yeah, it's really interesting that statement comes from an annual survey which is put out by Johns Hopkins University which is is looking at a lot of very sort of technical elements of preparedness and I think if you're not careful it can hide things which actually on a practical level become very important during a pandemic so the one that stands out to me is you know in terms of hospital beds per population the UK was theoretically fairly well prepared but it had a bit of a lack of critical care beds and until you actually have a pandemic you might not see that that can become a problem. And you might, well, for example, what actually happened in the UK was there was a scramble to convert the beds that we had, the hospital beds we had into critical care beds. But it meant that a lot of, for example, older people who would normally have been in a, in a normal hospital bed, if you like, was tipped out into care homes. And as we know, we then had a huge outbreak which ripped through our care homes. So you might have thought we were quite well prepared because we had a lot of hospital beds we could convert, but we didn't have a lot of existing critical capacity. So a sort of theoretical preparedness doesn't always translate into a, it can it can throw up problems that you might not have expected or might not have foreseen until until we have the data. And the other thing that always strikes me is the, the cuts we've seen to councils, which have been hit you know, harder than virtually any other service by austerity. And we're always seen as a, I think by the government as a, a cut that had fairly low political risk because they're not particularly lovable things, are they councils? And it's, I think, during this pandemic that people have come to realise quite a lot that when we're talking about councils, we are talking about social services and we're talking about a lot of aspects of public health. And now when we're talking about local lockdowns, we don't have councils and local government which is really in a position to coordinate that kind of thing in a way they might have been before austerity. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And perhaps something that hasn't been appreciated properly before the crisis, you know, 
lots of people, even people that I interview and, and, and there's been polling that's shown this, don't really appreciate that councils are in charge of social care, for example. So the government can make all sorts of pledges for NHS spending and you have those critical care bed figures that you were talking about before that were fairly flattering for the UK. But that doesn't mean that much unless you have a well-funded, properly structured social care sector, because the pressure on social care always falls on hospitals in the end. And actually, you've seen the pandemic flip that round with people being released and discharged from hospitals in order to protect them from the kind of overwhelming scenario that we saw from scenes in Italy. But of course, that kind of devastation was outsourced to care homes. And so it's sort of meaningless unless you fix both of those services together. Another thing that's not really appreciated about councils is that they they have the public health responsibility. So they were given those reserves in 2012. And and obviously those reserves grew because they took on that responsibility from 2012 to 2015. But then there's been a 30% cut in, in those public health reserves from 2015 to 2019, which is quite shocking. And I think not something that people generally think of when they think of what their council is in charge of. Usually it brings to mind, you know, images of bin collections and fixing potholes and maybe, you know, your local library, but not these kind of crucial services that have shown to be so vital and also so stretched in this time. Yeah, I think I think they were seen as an easy cut, weren't they, at the time? I mean, the joke always under Cameron was that when austerity started, people would be called in to see Osborne pre-budget and you know, all the other secretaries of state would would say how they couldn't possibly, you know, cut by as much as they were being expected to. And Eric Pickles would walk in as local government secretary and say he, he couldn't possibly cut by only this much. You know, he wanted to cut <laughs> by more. And I, it's obviously a little harsh, but only a little, I think, because he was, you know, fairly ideological about cutting the role of local government. And I don't know if you remember, but there was a lot of stories that were put out around those time about waste and, mm. you know, biscuits at council meetings and things like this, which were almost deliberately unfair to councils and deliberately undermined all the work they were being expected to do, you know, in terms of looking after adult social care, in terms of looking after child social care, in terms of the public health responsibilities they have. And, you know, this is in a way, I think, chickens coming home to roost and people seeing maybe now seeing for the first time that they are the ones who have those responsibilities and you can't just cut those services and expect it to have no knock-on effects in terms of health in, in the event of a crisis or even not in the event of a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of those wonderful things for journalists to FOI, like how much money was spent on biscuits and cakes for <laughs> at town halls. And also the, there's the town hall sort of fat cap salary list that's often released to try and sort of suggest that there's so much waste in, in these places. This has certainly turned that narrative around. So in terms of all of the different data points that you've been looking at, is there anywhere that Britain comes up well? Yeah, I mean, there's there's places where we come out sort of mid-packs. I think we were quite quick to get a stimulus package in place, for example. We we looked at when the stimulus package or a major stimulus package was introduced relative to the number of deaths countries were seeing. And and I think Rishi Sunak acted pretty quickly there. And it was relatively generous, although it's less generous when you look at it as a proportion of the, the deaths that we've seen. So it was relatively generous as a proportion of GDP, but then we have been hit harder than a lot of other countries. So we did relatively well on that kind of thing. Other than that, not great. I mean, we've looked at the economic impact, and as people might be aware, the predictions are the UK will see the biggest um, shrinkage of GDP in 2020 of any of the major countries. That's consistent with what we found as well. So 
the best we are is mid-pack and then in some in some instances we're we're a lot worse than that well thank you for trying to help well, that's me very, on very, an optimistic not, note not very <laughs> <laughs> well thanks so much for coming on david really good having you on and congratulations for a great issue which you can buy in both essential and non-essential shops <laughs> time for a section we like to call you ask us because anusha is not here for this section the we're, we're doing it as a, a duo so <laughs> the question this week is is Keir Starmer creating potential problems for himself in his responses to the black lives matter movement such as condemning one of their key demands as nonsense and describing the pulling down of the Coulston statue as completely wrong it strikes me that david lammy and others in his shadow cabinet are better at responding to such questions in a way that doesn't alienate white voters but doesn't anger black activists so it, it happens, and this is actually a, a very well-timed question. Mm-hmm. Honestly, we, we didn't didn't like get one of our mates to do it, because I have just got off, I almost said I've just got off with Keir Starmer, which would be a very different <laughs> podcast, with a, a, a Zoom meeting with a, some, a group of black journalists in which Keir Starmer talked about the party's response and the package of measures they are calling for. And of course, several of the questions were about the, the movement moment question in which he kind of said, and what he meant was that this has to be a moment for change. He didn't intend to dismiss it that. I think I think it's important to separate the two, mm-hmm. which is then ultimately one of the things I personally am finding deeply wearying, and I don't mean this to, at all about the question, the question or the questioner, is um, because pollsters do not regularly and reliably poll ethnic minorities, I keep seeing like, people both other black people but also more aggravatingly loads and loads of white people on twitter.com being like Keir Starmer is ignoring the views of black people on this and so I thought well a fortnight ago he did have another one of these zoom calls with with various community leaders and organizations yeah he is actually doing quite a lot of work on this kind of stuff behind the scenes but also because we don't have any bespoke polling we don't know what it's one of those things where I can be like Keir Starmer is ignoring black people by not focusing on like the gross inequity that is Arsenal being managed. You know, actually Arteta's brilliant, but like, you know, that is being owned by a, a, a negligent absentee owner. Right. Mm-hmm. But that is just my opinion. And with like the Coulston thing in particular, it's very clear that bluntly, if you thought, if, if you thought that him saying, I'm glad it's down, but, I wish it had gone down in a following democratic process. That is an extreme minority position. And there is no evidence that it is a majority op- opinion in any part of the United Kingdom, including among black Brits. And I, I just think it's important 
to remember that, right? Whereas I think the I think the the movement moment thing was as he acknowledged in the call his use of that term, which made it seem like he was saying it was ephemeral rather than saying this has to be a catalyst for change, as he'd said a couple of weeks ago, was obviously ill-judged. Mm. Yeah, and, and ditto with the, like, defund the police thing. Yeah, with the deeply imperfect thing, that in the absence of polling, I'm just going to go on my own social circle and the people I speak to in my own community. And I just think that if people have decided that they think that defund the police is a popular position, even, even among black British people. I, I personally, I doubt it, right? I just think it's unlikely. Yeah, I think I, I have, you know, a huge amount of time and admiration for David as, as, as long-term listeners of this podcast will know. But, you know, David is a man who has who spoke after the riots about how one of the causes was a lack of, of discipline and has spoken very powerfully, and I agree with him on some of it, and I strongly disagree with him on others about how he thinks that a problem of absent black fathers, of something, of course, that he and I share, is is one of the causes here. So mm-hmm. I, I think, and I say this as someone who, you know, very much, uh, you know, David Lammy is very much one of the MPs who I am, like, fully on the, like, hype train for. I, I just think the idea that, and I say this as someone who is much more liberal, liberal than David, I think that if, if we think that David Lammy was going to say something which would make people, make the activists who are getting angry about the response on defund the police more pleased i just think people are uh, yeah i i do think it kind of speaks to a broader kind of issue around like the way we've started to talk about like what black people think it's interesting i think because i suppose that that kind of clumsy moment if you can describe it that way where he was talking about the black lives matter movement and he just sort of describes it as a moment and was saying his political differences with some of the stated aims of that campaign that went on quite badly among activists. And I think it shows it's politically tricky because this is a movement about anti-racism, about exposing issues of systemic racism and sort of pushing for widespread policy change in, in multiple ways. And the Labour Party's interpretation of those demands and aims has been very much to push the government to implement things like the Lamy Report. But the kind of the stated aims of the Black Lives Matter movement are things like, as you say, like defunding the police, which we don't have the polling on, but are probably, like as you say, like quite fringe views and not something that is ever going to be Labour Party policy. But it, but it's tricky because I think, as you say, we don't really know what black people as a whole think of this, but the political movement that is sort of fighting for their rights is saying that they want these things and then it looks bad if Keir Starmer is saying that he disagrees because even though this is not really the intention and it's just sort of the reality of being a political party that is hoping to to win and will have its own policy positions on these things but it does kind of look like basically a white politician telling black activists what they can and cannot reasonably demand and so I understand why it went down badly, even though I, I mean, I was explaining this to some of my friends because a lot of them were kind of cross about it. I, even though, like, as you were saying, Stephen, there's really no evidence for those being issues that, that command widespread report, either in general in the population or among black people. So, yeah, I, I think you're right to separate the, the potential problems for himself 
in his responses to the Black Lives Matter movement and then maybe wider issues around racism because we know that that's also a potential issue in Labour at the moment that we were speaking about this briefly last week and it's quite difficult to talk about I think but basically there's a, a feeling in some parts of the parliamentary party particularly like on the left of the Labour parliamentary party and like among some activists that sort of anti-black racism particularly directed towards some of the party's black female MPs like Diane Abbott hasn't been taken as seriously as anti-semitism and then you've correctly stated that actually people have been expelled over the leaked Labour report or suspended over the over the leaked yeah. Labour report and again I think it's worth worth emphasizing again for listeners that like a lot of the perceived lack of coverage of that or lack of attention is is because of sort of ongoing legal issues with that. The fact that there is an ongoing investigation into it means that it isn't being so widely covered at the moment. But sort of whether that perception is correct or not, that, that like anti-black racism isn't being taken seriously, it is having an effect on members. Certain, I mean, it's anecdotal, but Nadine White at Huffington Post has done some really interesting reporting on this around like responses to the leaked Labour report and how black members are leaving the party and cancelling their membership over this feeling of of hurt and then the I suppose the like the way the the party has to grapple with these policy issues of how much do you accept the demands of the Black Lives Matter movement things like defunding the police the fact that they they are quibbling with those policy demands I think probably reinforces that feeling among, particularly among, I suppose, like younger black activists within the party. But I suppose, yeah, the question is, is there a, a bigger problem around how the party is responding to different kinds of racism? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's odd because I think that I think you raised two really interesting points there. One is, as you say, the, the disconnect between activists and voters, right? Mm. Now, I see no reason to believe that the average black member of the Labour Party is any more representative of the average black British person than the, because we shouldn't forget, right, the average Labour Party member is a 50-something baby boomer. And regrettably, for left-wing causes, the average 50-something baby boomer has a very different position on redistribution and social liberalism and crime and punishment to the average baby boomer who is, actually the average baby boomer who is a member of any political party is is, is out of step with the country on, on social liberalism. Mm. So I don't see any reason to think that, are, that that problem reflects a countrywide problem, but it does reflect a very important problem for the Labour Party that Keir Starmer is trying to tackle. And it was one of the other things that he was asked about at this this uh, roundtable with journalists, which is his inner team, and indeed the Labour Party staff as a whole, is is very white. Mm. He obviously talked understandably about the things that he successfully did as head of the CPS, the fact that in David Lammy's report, the CPS is the only bit of the state which does come out well in terms of increasing you know, genuine diversity within it at all levels of the organisation. Because, like, yeah, so bluntly, so te- let's take, say, just because it's top of mind because of the, the conversation I've been having today, right, let's take, say, the role of communications director of a major political party. Mm. Actually, your ability to to recruit a diverse office in politics relies on broadly the decisions taken by thousands of other employers in communications or the media or anywhere else, right? Yeah. Whereas your ability to get 
more staff coming in through Labour's graduate trainee schemes through its field operation is something you can control. And ditto, your ability to get new MPs from black and other minority ethnic is some ethnic minorities is something you can control. And I kind of think in some ways, right, it's a bit like um the huge success David Cameron has had in increasing minority ethnic uh, representation in the parliamentary party and now that's been carried through and to a position where the kind of three most plausible candidates to be prime minister after Boris Johnson are all from the Asian subcontinent. Mm. So yeah, if we take those kind of three candidates in order, right? Priti Patel, Rishi Sunak, Sajid Javid, right? Mm. Now, all of those are people who when they joined the Conservative Party were far out of touch with mainstream opinion. And so there's always this question, right? If you want to be a political party, which can one day have, I mean, I find it slightly weird using the sense that if you want to one day be a political party, which can one day have Priti Patel as its prime minister, a sentence which chills me to the bone in, in many, many ways. But, <laughs> um, but you know, but if, you, if you want to be a party which is, which is capable of having someone who, you know, although I think, you know, on almost every issue other than like banal things about, you know, not sending the tanks into journalists who say that they're opposed to everything you do in their podcast, right? But I think there's nothing I actually agree with Pretty on, right? But as a political operator, right, and as a talent, I think she she's she's very impressive, right? So you you always have this challenge as a political party, which is: Did the Conservative Party have to be as out of touch on Europe as have so many fringe positions as it did under William Hague in order to attract someone like Pretty Patel who could eventually be a plausible candidate for Conservative Prime Minister? Yeah, and it, it kind of it comes back to the because you know, one of the things he, for obvious reasons, he talked about a lot in this thing. Where he went, well, look, the Labour Party's been campaigning for a long time for more police. I think it would look dotty if we were to turn around and say we now think we should defund them. Yeah, and he obviously talked about the fact that that was that was a big campaign of Diane Abbott's, so another person who has long term listeners know on this podcast. I hugely admire for her kind of historic achievement and the you know and the fact that she is speaking to one of the plausible candidates to be Tory Prime Minister, and they said, well, yeah, look. I agree with they were like, I disagree with on everything, but I don't think I'd be here if she wasn't here. And so I just think it's very hard not to admire her kind of astronaut-like achievements. But someone who could become as politically and historically a significant figure in the Labour Party, who is, you know, who the Diana, you know, a 20-year-old Diane Abbott, as it were, joining the Labour Party now, probably is turned off by Keir Starmer saying that. Mm. And if they're turned off and leave, then they can't, you know, they can't become Paul Boateng in, in 40 years' time. They can't become Diane Abbott in 40 years' time. And I think that is the actual challenge. With, of course, the other thing, then what I thought, think is interesting about all of these, these sort of things is what I think it reveals that's actually interesting and is something that I think is worth keeping an eye on is how emotionally important, but it's, it's electorally important in terms of the story that they want to tell about Keir Starmer to the electorate is, you know, he had this big, serious job. He has a strong, authoritative chin. He's, you know, he's like you know, a serious adult, right? You know, and you can tell them they kind of want to run as the, like, we will make the noise stop and we won't be incompetent and you won't see homelessness. And, you know, they basically do want to be the kind of like, you know, make Britain quiet and normal again, centre-left prospectus. But you can also tell, I mean, understandably, he spent a lot of time there and, yeah, I did do a lot of stuff there then his time at the DPP is something that he is incredibly personally attached to and proud of. And it's a big, complex organisation where you will do lots of things which will annoy liberal-minded people, lots of things which will annoy authoritarian-minded people. And I think that that was the other thing I thought was revealing about it, because 
so much of that answer and a lot of the answer were I, when I was head of the DPP. And I think the Conservatives haven't yet worked out how they want to tackle that, other than, and this is a, an interesting question we got a couple of weeks ago and we didn't tackle because I realised it was so interesting and I didn't know how to answer it and I still don't, which is other than a couple of Conservative MPs sharing fake news about his time there, but it's not clear how they're going to be able to defeat that, right? You only need to share it once for it to exist on Facebook and potentially become really quite devastating. Yeah, and that's true of you know any any candidate for, for office in the modern era. But yeah, I think that's the thing I think is really interesting about it is how do you balance that activist talent pipeline with winning elections in the present day and his evident personal pride in a role where you do make a heck of a lot of controversial and unpopular decisions. Mm. I think also you're mentioning Diana, but I think this issue, I mean, this comes with millions of caveats, but I, I do think that this issue of the party's relationship with black activists and black voters maps onto the ongoing discussion around how Keir Starmer is going to relate to the left of the party or the sort of Corbynite wing. A lot of the the figures that activists feel particularly aggrieved at the treatment of, like Diane Abbott and Belle Ribeiro Addy in particular, a lot of those people are on the left of the party. And there were kind of still, we've had a hint of, of how Keir Starmer is going to be approaching relationships with the Corbynite left with the sacking of Rebecca Long-Bailey. But in, in analysis of that, it wasn't really sure whether his plan is to just sort of be tough on anti-Semitism, but ultimately keep everyone together and unite the party. Or if, as um, our departed colleague, Patrick Maguire wrote, his his plan is to... He's not, he's not dead. He's just at the times. <laughs> but, um, you know, if his, if his plan is, is to kind of do that by marginalising that part of the party, I think that's the really interesting thing that in terms of that kind of conveyor belt of activists who can join the party machine and then move up through the ranks, if MPs like Diane Abbott and Belle Ribeiro Addy are seen to be badly treated or marginalised in any way, kind of because they are in that wing of the party, but also because of certain things in the leaked Labour report. I think that will cause issues. I'm not entirely sure how how Keir Starmer is going to approach that, but I but I suppose I would just end by saying I agree with you that I have no no truck with people who seem to think that Diane Abbott is so, sort of uniquely stupid and and don't oh, and don't yeah. and don't interrogate their motivations for for thinking that's a big red flag when you're dating people if they don't like <laughs> Diane Abbott. Um, but I think that as you say, like certainly I think one thing that Labour should own in terms of this issue is taking pride in Diane Abbott mm-hmm. and her achievements as the first black woman elected to parliament. Yeah, this is the thing. It's like whenever someone's like, oh, she's stupid. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, she's... You're, you're, I'm, I'm willing to accept that she is 100% the dumbest person to have been the first black woman in... The first black person in their family to go to university in the, in the, in the early 60s uh, in Britain. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to accept she was 100% the dumbest person in that, in that trend set, which therefore makes her considerably smarter and more able than I imagine I would have been if I had to I don't think I would you know like ultimately when people say Diane Abbott's done we have to recognize the fact that I am still in 2020 the first black political editor of a current affairs magazine in the United Kingdom a much 
easier, I would argue, role to occupy than shadowing a major office of state. And I just think, yeah, it's one of those things, you've, yeah, it's just like one of those things where you just, you know, just eyes never unroll. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with Anush Shikalian, David Otwell, Stephen Bush and me, Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. The special issue of the New Statesman podcast, The Anatomy of the Crisis, is out now. Thank you.